Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Sam Beck Bessinger. Sam is the best selling author of Manage Your Money Like a Fucking Grown Up a guide to help you take control of your money so you can take control of your life. As her website says, you're going to earn plenty of money over your lifetime. Are you going to waste it on stupid crap that doesn't make you happy or let it buy you freedom and your most audacious dreams? In 2020, Sam produced a second version of the book, Manage Your Money Like a Grown-Up, a guide for teens. But writing about money is not the only writing that Sam does. She was one of the writers on Serial Box and Marvel's Jessica Jones Playing with Fire, a serialized novel. She's also written several episodes for animated kids TV show Team J, commissioned by the Juventus Soccer Club and produced and animated by Sunrise Productions. And the family-friendly comedy series Jungle Beat, which has been broadcast in over 180 countries on channels including Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. She's currently co-writing Magpies, a mystery suspense novel about missing girls who come back changed, together with Dale Halverson, who listeners may know as the extremely talented designer Joey Hi-Fi. Sam was a Mandela Washington Fellow for the Young African Leaders at Yale University in 2014 and is a partner and co-founder of two financial technology businesses. She also helps people to learn to adult better in general via her website likeafuckinggrownup.com. In the intro to Manage Your Money Like a Fucking Grown-Up, Sam says, We never get an instruction manual about how money works. We never have to pass a test to get our money license before we can take a new credit card out for a drive. Most of what we learn about money comes from advertising or from other people who know just as little as we do. No wonder we make such basic mistakes. No wonder we feel disempowered and scared. No wonder so many of us just decide to stick our heads in the damn sand and never deal with it. You gain control by being more conscious of your choices. Being in control of your money is about making those choices more deliberately because if you don't, you'll end up spending it all on the advertiser's idea of what makes a good life. So today I'll be talking to Sam about managing your money, writing and living the good life. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Jen. That was just such a kind intro. Good grief. (laughs) It made me sound so impressive. So let's start at the beginning of your fanciness. Why did you decide to write this book about managing your money? Well, you know, my obsession with money really does come from um, kind of a really feminist place, honestly. Um, So in my family, when I was growing up, uh, and I'll talk obliquely about this just because these aren't really my stories to tell, but my family was full of stories of women who had survived horrific domestic abuse. and I grew up always very, very conscious of how powerful money can be as a tool to control you um, and as a thing that can trap you in situations that are pretty terrible, whether that's in terrible relationships, terrible jobs, um, just terrible, terrible things. Uh, And, you know, it's kind of this funny thing for me because I grew up with this essentially terror of being broke because I, I'd seen in my family, you know, with the the really brave survivors that I knew, uh, how bad it could go. But instead of, you know, reacting to that 
in a in a kind of practical way where I'd feel like, okay, let me now go and make a real effort to be good at this. I did the opposite. I was just afraid and so was really good at ostriching and decided that my whole financial strategy for most of my early 20s would be to just never think about it. <laughs> I'd be like, I'll never think about it. It'll be fine. That's That seems very sensible. Um, and then what was, you know, a terrible lesson for me is that obviously never thinking about money turns out to not be a great financial strategy. And by my mid-20s, I found myself deep, deep, deep down a hole of debt. And I'd gotten myself to the point where by trying to never think about money, ironically, money was the thing controlling my life and controlling all of my decisions. And I'm really glad that that happened. And because that was my my, Damas my Damascus moment, the moment where I realized that this thing that I'd been avoiding because of how much it scared me was going to control me for the rest of my life unless I put on my big girl panties and freaking learned how money works. <laughs> um and the beautiful thing that happened when I made that choice and I spent the next few years obsessing about personal finance and trying to learn all of the rules of money that I'd never learned growing up, the incredible thing that I learned was that it's really not that complicated. And I was almost outraged when I, when I realized how simple the basic principles of saving and investing and staying out of debt are. Because I felt like, why do we not teach people when they're younger these foundational skills? Because it can really make such a big difference to the control that you have over your own life. So that became essentially my my passion, my the thing that I I do all the time. I went from being a person who never spoke about money to someone who talks about money all the time, even though it makes all my friends uncomfortable. <laughs> so I've done a full 180, um, but it really comes from this 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 deep passion for, especially for young women, to help make sure that other young people don't end up in situations where they don't have control because money is being used as a form of control over them. Well, according to my podcast stats, 76% of the people who are listening to Living While Feminist, the podcast, are women. And in your book, If People Aren't Convinced Already, you include some of the stats on women's earnings that made me feel like I should really be taking long afternoon naps and sticking it to the man instead of working my full eight hours. And you mentioned, and these are recently confirmed by Stats SA's research, that women earn about 30% less than men in South Africa. We socialize into doing different types of work, which is often lower pay. We're paid less for the same job, and then we still do most of the care work at home, even when we have a full-time job. Add to this that we live longer and take care of our kids and still feel like we must be beautiful and spend all our money on makeup and weird treatments. It made me really angry. Um, but yet, financial information and advice isn't marketed to women. I mean, recently they've started marketing beer, at least, which I'm sure you have happy about. But they haven't even started with money products. It just feels like it's a bunch of dudes running around. Even, you know, pictures of stereotypical pictures of Wall Street is all dudes. Um, and you say in your book, go be your own blesser. So tell me why, other than the reasons you've given, what links you see between feminism and financial knowledge? I mean, I think your intro is is exactly, exactly, exactly it, right? So the great irony of the personal finance industry or the financial services industry in general is that women of all people really need to get their heads around saving and investing from a younger age more urgently than men do because of all of the systemic 
inequalities that we face over our working lives that you mentioned. So, you know, we have, we earn less and our costs are higher. And, you know, the one that you, you touched on there that I actually just want to expand on a little bit is the, the cost of care work this year. So I was outraged about this before, but this year of our COVID 2020 has just made the fury bubble up even more because I think what we've seen this year is the extent to which women are just the shock absorbers of the economy. And it, it, it has absolutely infuriated me to see the impact that lockdowns have had on women's careers because there is still the, the expectation in so many families that when there is additional burden on, of childcare, if there is additional burden on elder care or sick family members, it's women who pick up the slack. And it's already specifically in South Africa, starting from such an unjust place, this burden of care work. Um, so, I mean, the one stat that totally blows my mind. So according to stats, they say two thirds of all births registered in South Africa don't list a father on the birth certificate. And in divorced households in South Africa, only 15% of men contribute financially. So we're talking about the impact of women's careers, having to take time off, um, and the additional work, the second shift, the fact that, you know, women are coming home and they're doing more and expected to do more. And women live longer. So, <laughs> I mean, I can get into a real rant fest about this. There's a lot to rant about. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is, I think women in general are really good savers because we have to be. Um, and women have been in incredibly resilient, especially in South Africa, where specifically black women far more were entirely cut out from the financial services industry completely. They were legally cut out from it until very, very recently. And nonetheless, women found ways to invest. They started Stockfells and burial societies, and they found ways to support each other and to grow their wealth and preserve their wealth. And it's amazing. Um, but the traditional financial services industry wasn't built for us. It was built for men. Women were only allowed to get their own credit cards in the 70s, you know. Um, and the assumption even in otherwise kind of quite egalitarian millennial households is still, and even amongst middle class and high owners, is still a breadwinner, homemaker dynamic in these subtle ways, even when both people are working. So, I mean, there was a study in, I think it was America or the UK, like a, like a you know, richer country uh, that found amongst millennial couples, heterosexual millennial couples, uh, it's still something like 63% of the women would still defer to their partner, their male partner, when it came to long-term financial decisions, specifically around investing. Because uh, there's still this feeling that the you know a man knows more about investing, so women are good savers, but the rates at which we're investing is still much lower, and that's and that's no surprise if we think about the fact you know this kind of systemic nature of how we've been left out of the industry. There's the deliberate stuff, and then there's the social stuff that you've mentioned as well. And um, there's also recent research from the Human Sciences Research Council that says. Um, that even when women are working, their working life is perceived by them and their partners in heterosexual couples as less important than the work that they're doing at home. And that if given the choice, the belief is still very strong that women would choose childcare. 
Um, and that's interesting because it, it speaks to narratives of gender. And one of those other narratives is that women are more emotional and that emotion is something to be feared. And I really like that you said in your book um, that we need to stop thinking that we need to be less emotional about money because money should feel emotional. And I think many feminists listening will have definitely been told at some time in their, other, in their lives not to be emotional. And it seems like the capitalist patriarchal agenda wants us to feel even more ashamed of our emotions and, and you know, shamed into fear and avoidance. Um, why do you think we should be emotional about money? Because ultimately money is about choices, right? And so ironically, this thing about women being afraid of investing uh, isn't even justified because all the data shows that when women do invest, we tend to have better investment outcomes than men. Um, one, because I don't think we necessarily, like I don't think that men aren't emotional either. And we specifically see in, in investing, men are more likely to do very like high risk trading behavior that us- that often doesn't work out on average. Um, I think that really successful investing though is about figuring out what matters to you in your life and making sure that you are putting your money into those things that mean something to you. And that has to come from a place of self-knowledge and it has to come from a place of really thoughtful work about figuring out what you value and building plans around it. And that is that is emotional work and that is introspective work and it's often care work because it's often about defining a vision for your family and for you know what not just you as an individual but what you as a community as you what you as a family value and making sure that you are funding those dreams essentially i suppose also just you know trying to think about yourself as an individual versus a part of a community is often very difficult when you've been raised as a woman because you've been told to think of everybody else first and that inherently your desire to save something for yourself is in some way selfish, which no one likes to be called and is commonly told to women rather than men. So I think you're so right about the emotions and you have in the book um, on page 89 for people who are reading along, a questionnaire about where your money feels come from. And I think it's, it's really important to do that introspective work before you start doing your planning I thought it was really useful and you also have a really important section near the start of the book that we sort of touched on but I think it's really important to mention is that the economy is fundamentally broken it was broken by design and in fact it's very difficult to make it to the middle class in South Africa there's also stats from Stats SA that people remain in the same income categories that their parents were that intergenerational poverty is still common Um, and you have a really lovely passage that is quite long but I'd like to read it because I think it's really important especially as we're coming out of COVID and people are beginning to realize this so you say if you have a job if you have any kind of money to manage to begin with you are already incredibly lucky and while this book is going to help you use that money to buy your own freedom it doesn't mean that if you get it right it's because you're a better person than other people do not blame the poor for their poverty the poor are not poor because they're not working hard enough or because they're stupid or because they're not managing their money well They're poor because the system is broken and rigged against everyone except for a tiny group of people at the top. And it's much more rigged against some people than against others. While we do what we can to have a healthy relationship with this green magic money juice, it must not stop us from interrogating and fixing the system that has made us so vulnerable to begin with and has shut so many people out completely. 
And I think you touched on it already in terms of the legal thing, the uh, legal exclusion of black women from credit, the legal exclusion of women from credit. Why did you think it was important that this be said in a book about managing your money, especially for South African readers? It's such a tension for me, Jen, writing in the in the genre of self-help at all, right? Because the genre of self-help rests on the assumption that your outcomes are within your control. And there's almost this tension that I have found that I have to carry through my own life of recognizing that, you know, we live in a society and a lot of, you know, I would say sort of almost 90% of your outcomes in your life are things that you probably can't control, things that are about being lucky or not being lucky. And, but at the same time, that's a very disempowering way to think about your own life. So it's kind of almost the strange tension I find that I have to carry in my in my own mind around, you know, I need to feel like I can I can have some power over the outcomes of my life um, without get, be, being blind to your privilege, essentially. Uh, and and it is a difficult tension, and it is a. I specifically felt like because this is a book about self help, and it's a book about you know we live in this broken game. Here are the cheat codes to this broken game, but that doesn't. It, that's not an endorsement of this game. <laughs> it's just like a. I want to help you, specific person, do slightly better at this shit 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 game. <laughs> but also also we should try and fix this game. And I I don't think that those things are necessarily intention, uh, like on a on a on a big picture level. I think that you can you can work to improve the outcomes of your own life, but do it in a way that is thoughtful and gives you more power in society to change society. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's kind of analogous, I guess, to sort of lean in feminism, right? Which I'm very skeptical of and critical of as well. Um, it's such a difficult thing to give people advice, you know, about this is how you as a person, as an individual can navigate an unjust system more effectively without losing that big picture thing of, you know, the the system is also not a great one and we can do both. So, you know, I think, you know, even when talking to the middle class in South Africa about uh, financial management, it's important to recognize the ways in which your own f- decisions also impact the wider society and their votes for this kind of society that you want to live in. And I think this really, um, you know, the rubber hits the road here often when it comes to domestic labor in middle-class South African homes, because, you know, care work in South Africa, when more middle-class women have been able to enter the workforce, but that's not because women are doing less of the care work. It's just that that care work is being displaced onto poorer, usually black women. Um, And so I think one of the really important things, even when you're thinking about household financial management in your own household, is to think about, are you being a fair employer to the person who is picking up the domestic labor slack in your home that's allowing you to enter the workforce? And because you're not innocent in that. And, you know, there are, there are ways, there are, there are places in which it's not a good idea to just try to be frugal. And I think how we pay our domestic workers is, is one example of that. Research from COVID shows that of the jobs that were lost in the first 
quarter of lockdown, two thirds of the jobs were lost by women and excessively in the domestic work sector where people just decided, you know, to cut that cost because that person wasn't because of COVID going to be able to make it to their house. So I think you 100% on the money there with, you know, we have to recognize that many people are outsourcing that labor. And if you're doing that, you should pay it as you would expect to be paid with security in some way. Um, to get on to some of the content, tell me about the idea that um, trying to look rich is how you end up poor and what made you first realize that? Oh, I guess it was, you know, when I when I got down my own debt hole, <laughs> it was my, my, my terrible realization that there's a real difference between being rich and being wealthy. So for me, the difference is being rich means you've spent a lot of money. Um, you have bought the fancy cars, you are going on the fancy holidays, you are keeping up with the Joneses and all the ways, you know, you, you, you appear to be living the good life. Wealth, on the other hand, is about the money that you keep, uh, which means it's often invisible. It can be hard to look at your peers and your friends and tell how they're actually doing financially, uh, which is a problem, right? Because then we, we try to keep up with the external things, but we might not realize that all of those external things are being funded through debt, which often in the middle classes in South Africa is exactly what's happening. Uh, you know, I was speaking to uh, someone at one of the big four banks in South Africa uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying there was this, this really interesting thing about how post-COVID, the, the higher income earners on their books were the ones that are have not rebounded as well as lower and middle income earners. So people who had large incomes, like you know, fifty thousand rand a month up, um, were the ones that were most hit and have taken on the most consumer debt and are now over indebted as a result of this year. Uh, and South Africa, South African rates of, of over-indebtedness in general are very high, and they're surprisingly high amongst high-earning, relatively high-earning families. I think for me, one of the biggest revelations that I had when I was in my 20s was realizing that wealth really is the thing that gives you more freedom in your life over the long run. And you know, boringly, <laughs> that often means choosing to not buy the new car, but rather to build up some investments. But over the long run, those are the things that will allow you to have to make different choices in your life and will, you know, choices like not, not being poor when you're old, for example. Um, I'm interested in this idea of the wealth, you know, the wealthy are taking on even more debt to look even, oh, sorry, the rich are taking on more debt to look even richer to their peers who then compete. And I've also heard that, you know, people who live next door to lottery winners end up getting bankrupt because they try to keep up with the new innovations that are happening next door. Um, do you think that the banks have any role to play in if like in an ethical way that people shouldn't be lending, to, shouldn't be allowing consumers to become over indebted? Absolutely. Um I would say, though, that it's pointless to, to, well, not pointless, but that it would be more effective for us to, to focus on strengthening regulation that makes it impossible for banks to um, allow people to become over-indebted or to encourage them to become over-indebted. Um, you know, there, there has been some progress on this in the last couple of decades. 
the Consumer Protection Act and the, the National Credit Act, they've, they both put stronger protections um, to try to prevent people who can't actually afford to take on more debt uh, from being offered it. But the reality is that a lot of the consumer debt in our country just happens because people don't earn enough. It's it's really quite simple. Uh, and that's not even something that, you know, credit is trying to solve the problem, but it's a Band-Aid. It's not the, the source of the problem necessarily. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult because it's also about, you know, we don't really want a government that's trying to control everything we do. We also want black people not to be sold stuff that they can't afford, including debt. I've I've heard such horror stories as well from people uh, when applying for payday loans, literally being encouraged by the loan offerers to lie about what their expenses are because they wouldn't qualify for the debt if they were honest, but they're being encouraged by the people offering the loans to just lie. So, you know, these things happen. It's, yeah. <laughs> the system is broken, just to reinforce that message. Um, one of the other messages that I think people might be surprised by is the idea that money doesn't actually buy you as much happiness as you think. So in your book, you have a really useful graph that shows that after we start earning a certain amount per month, any more money that we earn doesn't actually make us happier. Why not? Uh, so there's this idea in behavioral science called the hedonic treadmill, uh, you know, like the hedonism treadmill. But it's it's simply the idea that we get used to whatever we have. Um, human beings are incredibly adaptable. I think we've all adapted to huge changes in our lives this year, for example. And it's kind of amazing how quickly you become used to something. Uh, you become used to anything. And that includes the things that you buy because you you think that they will make you happy. You know, all the research is that specifically when it comes to th like lifestyle upgrades, which tend to be the things that you know, eat up 80% of our, of our expenses, of, our, of the money we spend every month. So the car, the house, the things that you, you just become part of the background of your life, if you, if you upgrade them, you get a very temporary boost in happiness. But it's, it's honestly a couple of weeks before you return back to your baseline. Um, and spending more money after a certain point really just doesn't make any difference over your long-term happiness. Other things do. Uh, spending more time with family and friends and building better relationships, uh, looking after your health. Those are things that really, really do contribute to your long-term happiness. Spending money on lifestyle upgrades or holidays or I don't know I'm currently obsessed with the idea of buying a velvet jumpsuit <laughs> um, but I, I know that it would make me happy for five minutes if only we could rent all these things like you know have a system where you could rent ridiculous outfits I saw someone's beautiful like sequined pink dress on the internet that day I was like I would wear that once and I would love it but then what would it do love it, love it. <laughs> So maybe some of our listeners are thinking, I wish I could retire in 10 years. Do you think that's an impossible dream? And if not, what would be your first steps to getting there? So the really fun thing about uh, early retirement math, if you, if you do the math, is that the, the higher percentage of your income you save, the faster it will be for you to retire. And that seems obvious, but it's like twice as fast as you would think just looking at it on paper. Because if you can live on less of your income 
that also means that the amount that you need your savings to pay you after you retire is less as well. Does that make sense? <laughs> you get like a double bonus by reducing your lifestyle expenses. Um, so I talk to a lot of people who are on this kind of early retirement journey. And I, and I, you know, I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, I think it has a lot to offer people who are in their 50s and 60s, though, as well. You know, because the, the really cool thing is there are people in their 20s and 30s who do the math on this and realize, you know, actually, if you do manage to configure your lifestyle so that you can save 40 to 50% of your income every month, you can retire in 10 years. That's great if you're 20 or 30 and you want to retire so that you can travel the world or go surfing or something. But it's it's kind of a critical question for if you're in your 50s and you have just realized that you do not have any retirement savings. It's also, it is possible. Um, yeah, not, not simple, but possible. <laughs> Not simple. Well, I suppose it's not simple without giving up any of your impulse buys and things like that. But I think many people listening, you know, if you're not in a stable job that does provide you an RA that you can match, or if I'm a freelancer, you know, if you have to save that yourself, it is, it, it does require self-discipline. Um, I have, I mean, you've given some really useful options for people and you've also got a table in the book of like how much exactly you need to save to retire by what age and percentage wise. So chapter two of your book is going to help everybody who buys it take a money crash course. And you do have a little quiz for people to sort of see what their money knowledge is. But the three key areas in that section are how to save your money, how to grow your money, and how to keep your money safe. So I'm not going to spoil people by giving away all your advice. But what are some essential concepts or ideas that you think people need to know if they're interested in getting their money under control? I think kind of one of the most important things to internalize is just how dangerous inflation is. Uh, inflation is this, this terrible thing that means that every year that you sit on money and you just save it without investing it, that money is worth less and less and less. And I think that this is particularly such an important thing for women to hear, young women to hear, who, again, are really good at saving, but tend to not invest their money as much as men do. Uh, the reality is if you don't invest your money over the long term, it's kind of a surefire way to lose that money, ironically. So any money that you are saving for longer than you don't intend to spend it within the next year, you really should rather than keeping that just in a regular savings account at the bank, be looking at finding a way to make that money grow and that's not about taking risks or trying to be flashy or try to be Leonardo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, that's literally just about making sure that you're, you're preserving the value of that money over time. And, and that's really what investing is. But obviously, savings and investing is one thing and getting out of debt is your most important step. Um, you, I received your newsletters and in the last one, you shared a link about how you can get out of a debt spiral. Why is, you know, sorting out your debt first a more important thing than saving and trying to pay off your debt at the, at the same time? So the average interest rate that you pay on unsecured uh, debt, so that's something like a credit card or a personal loan, tends to be around like 19, 20, 21, 22%, right? The best interest rate you're going to get on a savings account at the bank is five and a half, six 6%. So 
the difference between 22% and 5.5%, that's why the banker drives such a nice car and you don't. (laughs) So when you have debt, almost always the best investment you can make is paying it off and getting rid of it. Um, And that's one of the things that's so demoralizing about debt is when you have debt, it keeps you trapped in the cycle of paying for things that you've already consumed, paying for things from the past. And it's very hard to move forward and to think about the dreams you have for your future that you could rather be funding while you are still getting rid of that debt. Debt is very expensive. And, and, you know, people who offer debt are very good at hiding exactly how expensive it is. Well, since we on a podcast, and I assume that implies that people are listening, listen to other podcasts, do you have any good podcasts that you listen to about your money? I mean, tell us a bit more about the money podcast that you started. Oh, thanks. Uh, so I started a, a podcast last year, uh, which was, it was called Like a Fucking Grown Up. And it was, some of it is about money and some of it is about other other questions about adulting. So my current kick, which is trying to figure out how to not let my aging, decrepit 30-something body to fall to, be, fall to pieces. <laughs> um, so I've been thinking a lot about health recently. Um, my favorite money podcast to listen to though, actually is, uh, a local podcast called the fat wallet show, uh, run by Simon Brown and Christian van Heerden. Uh, it's so much fun. I highly recommend it to everybody. Uh, it's, it's very accessible and, uh, they talk a lot about financial freedom and very, they balance simple and complex investing questions with really basic things around saving and getting out of debt and the the things you have to do to get started. I love it. So highly recommend. You are sort of a creative mystery. I mean, you're doing like financial stuff, you're using the left and right of your brains, Um, but you have a degree in creative writing. So how did you end up on a money mission? And tell me a little bit about creative writing in your life. Do you know the beautiful thing about coming to terms with my own finances is that it is the thing that has allowed me to have the career that I've always dreamed of having. You know, I, I, I came out of university with a degree in, well, I think it was actually literature and religious studies, Jen, of all things, <laughs> like the world's most practical degree. Um, and I ended up getting a job in advertising because I literally couldn't figure out what other kind of job to get. And I was really miserable and hated it. But I felt like I had no choice but to have that job because my finances were in such a mess. And the most powerful thing that spending time really wrapping my head around money and building my own financial plan, what I've bought with my savings is I've bought the freedom to start my own businesses and give writing fiction a go full time. Um, And that's been just really transformational for me. It's the thing I've always wanted to do since I was a very, very tiny person, but I couldn't do it until I wrapped my head around money. Money is the thing that, that empowered my creative, my creative life. Um, you know, there's that wonderful, wonderful thing that Sher said in an interview where she said her mom once sat her down and said, you know, honey, I really think it's time that you settle down and find a rich husband. And Sher said, mom, I am my own rich husband. <laughs> I've, I've often felt like what 
what really having a solid financial plan has done for me is it's allowed me to be my own creative patron. So it's allowed me, you know, and it started in the last couple of years with taking writing sabbaticals and funding them out of my savings. Um, and I, that was in the first one of those writing sabbaticals. That's when I wrote the money book and continuing to save and continuing to think about what are the dreams that I want to fund has let me just take longer and longer writing sabbaticals um, to the extent that now I'm kind of on a, on a permanent writing sabbatical. Writing is just my job now, which is my dream. And that's, that's the thing that I wish for anyone who reads my book is that having a financial plan will help you to live whatever version of your life is the one that really sets your bones on fire dreams <laughs> sounds so nice <laughs> dreams <laughs> and you but you've got a lot of creative projects on the go and um, you're busy writing a book with another writer at the moment can you tell me a little bit more about that well, uh, I've realized that making things with my friends is my favorite way to make things. So <laughs> Dale Halverson and I have written projects before. Um, we wrote a short story a couple of years ago that we are currently trying to, to pitch uh, as a TV show, which I'm really excited about. So we know that we work really well together. Um, so we're having so much fun writing this novel. Uh, it's it's really a novel about what it was like to be a teenager in Pretoria when things were very boring and me and my best friend had to invent our own fun. Um, and it's a it's a love letter to teenage girl friendships, really, is what it is. Um, but it's also a twisty twisty mystery, um, which I'm I'm having so much fun writing it. Uh, and the other project I'm working on at the moment is a is a choose your own adventure game about climate change. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I, I am, I do have a very short attention span. And one of the things I, I've learned how to do is to kind of harness my short attention span into some flavor of productivity, because basically I make sure that I always have more than one project on the go so that I can procrastinate from one project by doing the other project. <laughs> and somehow that kind of works out for me. <laughs> So many writers that I talk to say the exact same thing. So I think it is, it's, you can't become, it can't become a chore to be creative. Like it just doesn't work. The, the creativity taps turn off. <laughs> so I also love procrastinating from one to the other. So we have three, I have three last questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. I'm going to uh, alter the first one a little bit for you. So do you have any books that have inspired either your feminism or your financial management journey or both? uh can I can I mention one of each yes you can mention as many as you like okay great so um I think recently a book that has really kind of made me think even more deeply about reproductive labor um, is this fantastic book by Joanne Ramos called The Farm which is so relevant for South Africans it's a it's a fictional book but based on the very real emerging phenomenon of uh, surrogacy for rich rich women um, often done by poorer women and it's fantastic it's such a good book highly recommend it really will make you think about a lot of things um, financial books uh, there's a book by Vicky Robinson called Your Money or Your Life it's an old book now I think it was published in the early 90s but it's so I, I love it because it's not about the nuts and bolts of investing in different types of assets it's about 
the emotional relationship that we have with money and the stuff that we were talking about. It's, it's about recognizing that all the money you will earn over your whole lifetime is limited. So it's really important to be choiceful about what you're going to spend that money on. So it's great. Highly recommend. And do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? Um, I, I, it's a, it's, it's so, it's such a, such a well-loved one. I think it might be bordering on cheesy, but, um, the, the line from Nelson Mandela's speech where he says, your freedom and mine cannot be separated is something that I, I, I remind myself constantly. And what would be your advice to feminists listening to this podcast? So my advice is to the men listening to this podcast, the, the men who are feminists, um, because I think women get, uh, get a lot of advice and we're, we're already being told to do so much. <laughs> um, and I think my advice to, to men listening to this is to be thoughtful about the ways that how domestic labor is done and, and shared in your own relationship is a really powerful and political thing. It's not neutral. Um, so take some, even if you think that things are relatively equal and egalitarian in your household, it's worth spending a week just observing who is doing what kind of work to care for your household and in what proportion and to make sure that you are being fair on your partner, specifically if it's a heterosexual relationship that you're in. Those things matter. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming to talk to me today and for your advice and for your fantastic book. I really do hope everybody goes out to get it um, because it does change how you feel about money, which I think is the most important thing. Thank you so much, Jen. You can get Sam's book, Manage Your Money Like a Fucking Grown-Up, at all good bookstores online and overseas. You can also get her latest book, Manage Your Money Like a Grown-Up, a guide for teens in South Africa. Please also visit her website, likeafuckinggrownup.com, for lots of useful advice and information. so much for tuning into this week's episode of living while feminist with me jen thorpe please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences take care of yourselves <laughs>